back, ladies and gentlemen, to my Christian podcast with your host, Ricky. And Marty. And that's right, ladies and gentlemen, we're back. We're bringing back Lynn Reidenhauer. We're back, and uh, he's going to tell us some more stuff about his uh, his thoughts on Mormonism and how it affects his life and and everything like that and about what inspired him to uh, continue, you know, uh, to spread the message of continually uh, to build a community where it's accepting of a lot of the different denominations and stuff once again this is post so uh we've just got off the phone with lynn and it was an amazing conversation what, what do you think what, what did man i really 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 enjoyed it this guy has like so much to offer and give you know with his stories and all that stuff and you know things that he's experienced and how he's sharing you know his views on on christianity and so forth and his beliefs I mean, it's, it's incredible. And, you know, I got to give him a lot of credit because, you know, some people will turn their face on, on, on certain messages that he's giving, but man, yeah, you guys got to listen to it because it's, it's really informative and yeah, it's quite a bit, you know, quite an experience. It, it really is. And I'm, I'm really, really impressed with his history of, uh, of Mormon church or LDS history. You know, I'm not an LDS right? member, but, uh, I, I I knew a little bit, but man, he, this guy looks sounds like he runs the place. You know what I'm saying? He knows like a lot of stuff about it, and I know he's just like blah 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 blah. Just yeah, just says it right out of the right out of history. And he kind of <laughs> kind of brings it alive too, man. Doesn't? Yeah, he? dude. I was I was just like wow. Yeah, because especially the the stories at the end with the well and everything. I, I thought that was amazing, and uh, and about the you know shaking hands with the uh, with the with the posse. Uh, that that's that's just great great stuff man um so ladies and gentlemen let's go right ahead right into it and uh, remember if we're gonna do this another time one more time for the time being and then uh, uh so make sure if you for next week send in your uh your questions if you have any, any questions and we'll try to get to them all again so uh so here we go all right ladies and gentlemen we're back with lynn right from independence missouri there you go. We had him on last week, ladies and gentlemen, and now we're back to ask him the questions that you've sent in and that Marty has and that I have. So if you uh, have, if you missed that episode, make sure you go back to episode, what was it, number nine? Yeah. And check it out because uh, it, it, it was really good. It was really good. Uh, so how you been this week, Lynn? Oh, been one, doing wonderful. I was been pondering all week, actually, about our time together last time and I not only had fun, but it was informative, and I trust uh, uh, it was inspirational. So thank you for asking. Oh, yeah, no problem, man. How how you been, Marty? I haven't seen you in uh, like five, six months. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, we, we you know, actually, we haven't seen each other that long since all the virus thing came up. But then this past weekend, what, Saturday, we had some lunch together, and that was fun. That was good to see my partner there. And uh, I'm doing good. I'm doing pretty good. I'm excited about having this um, next episode with Lynn because, you know, people have been emailing us. People, let me tell you something, Lynn. People have been really inspired by your, the message that you, you know, gave last week with your testimony and so forth and your, in your journey and in your faith and everything else. And, yeah, it touched a lot of people. So I'm excited about asking you these questions and get this going. Oh, thank you. So are, are you ready for some questions then? Yes. Ready? Yeah. You ready yes. for this? Uh -huh. All right. All right. All right. All right, Marty, I'll let you go ahead and start. And because uh, since you have all the questions on you. So okay. Go ahead. Marty. Okay. So 
I've gotten quite a few of the same question, which this is like the biggest one. So a lot of the people who have listened to the, you know, the podcast last week are asking, why haven't you been baptized in the LDS church? That's a legitimate question, and it's it's fair, and uh, I get that a lot. <laughs> I really do. Um, let me bottom line you with this. Um, uh, hanging around uh, uh, my precious LDS brothers and sisters, I've learned that it's always safe and always a good thing to quote Brother Joseph. So uh, <laughs> you're always safe quoting the prophet. So really, but he puts his finger on it. Why I'm, I'm not a member. Uh, I can say it no better th than uh, Brother Joseph said it. And in fact, uh, and, uh, I, and I'm not trying to show off. I, I just love your church history. I've read your volumes and in volume seven, uh, page 382, uh, Brother Joseph was presiding over an elders meeting with his younger elders, and he said these words to them. Uh, I quote Brother Joseph. He said, we are asked, is the church of God and the kingdom of God the same organization? And we are informed, uh, says the prophet, that some of the brethren hold that they are separate. This is the correct view to take, says the prophet. The kingdom of God is a separate organization from the church of God. And I, I'm going to, I'm continuing to quote on page 382. On this point, the prophet Joseph gave an example, which he asked the younger elders who were present to always remember. It was to the effect that, and here's the key point, Men might be chosen to officiate as members of the kingdom of God who had no standing in the church of Jesus Christ uh, of Latter-day Saints, end of quote. Well, that's pretty well said. And my point is, let me just elaborate on that a minute. I feel very strongly that I'm one of those. I'm convinced having done this for 30 some years, I believe with all my heart, uh, Marty and Ricky, that I can get more done. I can accomplish more good outside the church. And another quote to, I believe, substantiate my sentiments or my feelings about, about this matter. Uh, President Ezra Taft Benson, back in 1972, quoted in a conference Orson F. Whitney in a conference that Whitney spoke at in 1928. So you have uh, the president of the church quoting a church authority, Orson F. Whitney. And Whitney said these words, I quote, perhaps the Lord needs such men on the outside of his church to help it along. They are among its auxiliaries. And here's the point, can do more good for the cause where the Lord has placed them than anywhere else. And I, I continue to quote, God is using, says Orson Whitney, God is using more than one people for the accomplishment of his great and marvelous work. The la and his last statement, the Latter-day Saints cannot do it all. It is too vast, too arduous for any one people. End of quote. Now, may I elaborate just a moment on that? Please do. Yes. I 
and accepted in all the camps. I get to preach in Methodist churches because of my message of bringing God's people together that uh, we have far more in common than all of our differences. Let's celebrate our commonalities and minimize our differences. I preach that in Methodist churches, Baptist churches. I preach in Disciples of Christ churches. I preach in Pentecostal churches. I preach in LDS conferences. I preach in RLDS churches. I preach in Remnant another Book of Mormon group here in town, remnant churches. I've preached in Restoration Branches churches. My point is I demonstrate, I hope, by my spirit of accepting everyone, and my standard is this. If you believe in the gospel, which Paul enumerated and Brother Joseph enumerated, which is the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, Joseph tacked on the ascension, then we're a family. You are my brother, my sister in Christ. Everything else is negotiable. So my point is the reason I don't become baptized, um, maybe for a good reason, well, it's really a sad reason to, to get to the bottom of it because of still that uh, tendency to divide us up into denominations. The moment I would join one group, my building bridges ministry is over. So what do you think about like when people of certain denominations say that only this denomination is going to, to heaven at the end of time? You know what I'm saying? What do you think about that? What do I think about other denominations going to heaven? Is that what you say? No, no, that they claim that only their denomination will go. Oh, uh, you know? uh, oh how, how do I handle the, um, which, which, by the way, and, and what I'm about to say is just a critique and an, uh, and an observation. It's not a criticism, okay? I want to preface that. But the phrase, right. uh, uh, the, phrase uh, the one true church, is used uh, quite often uh, among, among Latter-day Saints, LDS. And... Um, in other words, people ask me about that. Well, Lynn, uh, what do you think about the one true church? And now you've heard, again, as I said in the last interview, you've heard of the, maybe you're too young, but when I was a kid, I just looked forward to Saturday mornings because I got the newspaper and could read uh, Peanuts. You know, they had a... <laughs> They, they had a little cartoon every Saturday morning in the paper uh, called Peanuts. And finally, the author of that cartoon, I've forgotten his name, but he wrote a little book called The Gospel According to Peanuts. Well, you're about to hear the gospel according to Lynn, okay? This is my, okay. This is my take. Now, one of the, uh, and, and let me say what I want to say before I, let me preface what I want to say before I really say what I want to say. The th one of the things, uh, Marty and Ricky, that attracted me to the restoration was its understanding of the afterlife, how you have expanded, and thank you for it, uh, uh, Latter-day Saints, thank you. You've expanded my understanding um, of what happens in the afterlife. We Protestants, generally speaking, and particularly us evangelical Baptists, i.e. we Baptists, our perception of the afterlife is, well, we die and we go to heaven. 
I mean, that's pretty much it. Right. You know, yeah. uh-huh. Um, we don't know what to do with the concept of the prison house or paradise. And so, and I'm answering your question. I'm just trying to put in some context. Right, right, right. Yeah, I believe in the one true church in this regard, that it's a restoration of the understanding of an expanded afterlife. I don't care, and let me interject this before I continue. I don't categorize or label. First of all, I very much dislike labels, uh, but sometimes they're necessary just to communicate. And this is one of those times. I categorize all Christians into three categories. There are three types of Christians, according to Lynn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. okay. I categorize them not by denominations or creedal affiliation. But I categorize all believers, all Christians, by the three main feasts of Israel. Now, there were seven feasts altogether, but there were three main ones. The Feast of Passover in the spring, the Feast of Pentecost in midsummer, and the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. Well, those Old Testament ceremonies point to New Testament realities. That's the point I'm making. There are Passover Christians, and I categorize them in the spiritual terms of those who in the New Testament Christianity age that we're in primarily celebrate the first feast spiritually, which is the spiritual theme of God delivering his people out of Israel was the feast of deliverance. When he saw the blood over the doorstep, God would deliver his people into the promised land. They wandered, but that's the primary theme of the Protestant religion, is that come, be born again, be delivered from the uh, heart and, uh, of Israel or the world, and God will put you a new heart into the promised land. You need to be saved, or however you want to articulate it. There are those types of Christians who celebrate primarily and camp out and don't celebrate the second and go on to the third. One category. The second category are the Feast of Pentecost Christians, which celebrate the first feast of Passover, spiritually speaking, as well as the second feast, Midsummer Feast, which is a ceremony pointing to the spiritual reality of a Pentecostal lifestyle. There are those Christians primarily labeled Pentecostals and contemporary charismatics. There is another feast. Joseph Smith was a tabernacle Christian. The early saints, I believe, were tabernacle Christians. The restoration movement is centered on the third feast, which is all inclusionary. Doesn't mean we only celebrate the third feast and not the second and first. We celebrate spiritually all three. We celebrate being delivered from this worldly spirit. We call it the mighty change of heart. We celebrate the Pentecostal experience as in spiritual manifestations, supernatural encounters. I counted 576 passages in your church history 
where there was some kind of supernatural encounter, thus the lifestyle of the Pentecost Christian. But there's another feast, the Feast of Tabernacle Christian, which not only has to do with the gospel of kingdom on this earth, but the gospel which includes the revelation of the expanded afterlife. That the one true church, I believe, embraces all of those three spiritual realities. And Joseph Smith, the early saints particularly, were about the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a restoration of the glory of the Lord Jesus returning to this earth until the waters cover the sea, the glory of God would once again return to Israel in 1820 when it left Israel in the minor prophets, the glory of Israel, a pillar of fire by night, a glory cloud by day, stayed with the nation of Israel all through the wilderness, leaving Goshen. And they stayed with Israel all through the major prophets. Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord uh, in a temple, you know. Uh, go on over to Ezekiel. He saw the glory of the Lord, the wheel in the wheel. The glory and the presence stayed upon the nation of Israel, which is heaven on earth. That's my point. Until we get to the minor prophets of Haggai and uh, Nahum, and by the time you get to Malachi, the glory of the Lord had lifted on the, uh, from the state of Israel because of their disobedience, and they begin to follow after other gods. That glory stayed gone through uh, the New Old Testament and New Testament era. It stayed gone when the king of Israel came back, when Jesus walked the earth. There was no glory. We saw his person, but not his glory. In the Old Testament, God's people got to see his glory, but not his person. Most wanted to see his face. His person said, no, you can't see my person. I'll hide you in the cleft of this rock, and you can see my glory as I walk by. Well, that switches in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God's people saw his glory, but not his person. In the, or in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, God's people and all the people saw his person, but the Lord hid his glory. He never wanted to take credit for it. He, only three of his best friends, one day he said, hey, Peter, James, John, follow me. I won't take up all this mountain. I want to show you who I really am. And he was transformed, and they got to see his glory. Other than that, no glory. No glory in this first, second, and third centuries. No glory during the Middle Ages. The glory that was once upon the nation of Israel stayed gone until 1820. When a 16-year-old lad, an Israelite, walked out into the woods, and the glory returned in this, in this sense, God will deliver Latter-day Israel like he delivered the first Israel. When God's people lay aside their differences about denominationalism, the true message of the restoration was not so much the priesthood. It consisted of, of being restored, the priesthood, but proper authority without his glory doesn't cut the mustard as far as I'm concerned. What's his authority if you don't have the glory of God to back it up? 
So the priesthood is a byproduct of recognizing that the one true church walks in his glory upon this earth right now, which includes the manifestations of Feast of Pentecost and Feast of Passover. It's an all-inclusive gospel. The one true church is the universal body of Christ that was restored in 1820 by a 16-year-old lad. It has nothing to do with denominations. I don't know if I answered your question or not. No, no I, that's pretty good. That's, that's very uh, profound and deep. I'm going to have to re-listen to that because, man, you, you obviously know a lot more about church history than I do. And uh, I'm just just wow thanks man i appreciate it oh you're you're quite welcome uh i'm a preacher so i uh, sometimes i get wound up i'm sorry (laughs) no there's no reason to apologize man i'm just i I love listening to it i'm just passionate and you know thinking about it yeah okay yeah but anyway that's my don't have to apologize that's my definition of the one uh true church or that's my definition of heaven i do believe Uh this There are degrees in heaven. Even the Bible teaches that. Um, uh, Paul says it in uh, writing to the church of Corinth, there's the celestial king glory, the terrestrial glory, and the celestial glory. Now, we Protestants don't know how to handle that, but that's a beautiful thing. I do believe that everybody that, uh, when Christ returns for the millennium, Every person on the face of this earth since Adam will be resurrected, and everyone will end up in one of those three glories except the sons of perdition. Now, that's my take. Mm. That's my take on the gospel. And so uh, uh, it's not a matter of whether or not you go to heaven. It's what degree. Uh-huh. That's my understanding. Um, so, so, and, and I believe to have an understanding of the restoration or what what was restored. See, I think we I call them I call the saints the sidetracked saints. I think we got too <laughs> sidetracked on this matter of authority. Now, again, I'm not putting it down. I'm not putting the priesthood down. Don't 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 misunderstand what I'm saying. But restoring Christ's authority through the priesthood comes by demonstrate the power of the priesthood. Joseph was very sensitive about that matter. In fact, he told his uh, elders once, it would be better for you not to minister healing without the power. I'm quoting the prophet in church history. Wow. You know, it's interesting you bring all this up because actually that was one of the questions as well that I had about what was your view concerning, you know, having the priesthood versus the other, you know, denominations. But you pretty much was answering a lot of that already. Yeah, I I present it this way. Joseph Smith was extremely tolerant of Christians of all sects. Mormonism is not exclusionary or should not be. Joseph Smith said these words. Um, He said, we don't ask anyone. I think I mentioned this last time, but it bears repeating. We don't ask anyone to give up any good they've got. We only ask them to come and get more. Now, I understand that 
pretty well. I think Joseph meant what he said and said what he meant. <laughs> I don't think the meaning is hitting. I think Joseph was telling me, he said, Lynn, keep your Baptist doctrine. Just come and get more. Lutheran, keep your Lutheran doctrine. Catholics, keep your Catholic doctrine. Pentecostals, keep your doc, uh, Baptist or uh, Pentecostal doctrine. But there's another feast to celebrate, and it's called the Feast of Passover. Let's examine that because the restoration is built upon a restoring of the Lord's glory upon his people on this earth. Go ahead and speak in tongues and perform miracles, Pentecostals, and go ahead and pass out tracts, you Baptist, about the born-again experience, your four spiritual laws or whatever. Just come and get more. There's another feast. Joseph was inclusive in his approach to ministry. So do you think that we that everybody should be this way? Oh, I think that's the heart. Hey, that's the heart of the prophet. And I pray, I, I really pray this prayer. Joseph was preaching a sermon in 1843, one year before he got shot. And he said, when I read this sermon, the first time I read it, it was a jaw dropper to me. And I want to quote it if I can. Jo jo yeah, Joseph, while preaching a sermon, said these words, if I esteem mankind to be an error, shall I bear down on them? No. I will lift them up. And in their own way, too, if I cannot persuade them, my way is better. Now listen to the heart of the prophet. Here it comes. I, says the prophet, I will not compel any man to believe as I do. Well, come on, excuse me, time out, calf rope as we say here in Missouri, that's the Joseph Smith that I know. Let me continue. I will not compel any man to believe as I do. And a very wise statement follows. The prophet says, for truth will cut its own way. In other words, not my job trying to talk you into anything. That's the Holy Ghost job. Truth will cut its own way. Then the prophet asks a rhetorical question. Do you believe Jesus Christ and the gospel of salvation, which he revealed? So do I, says the prophet. Here comes the jaw dropper. Christians should cease wrangling and contending with each other and cultivate the principles of union and friendship. Here comes the real jaw dropper, his last comment. I, says Joseph Smith, I am just as ready to die defending the rights of a Presbyterian, a Baptist, or a good man of any other denomination, end of quote. I tell my gang, hey, that's not the words or the heart of a plagiarist, an egotist, or a cult leader. Give me the heart of that man. 
first thing is I and I would say, and I don't think I'm embellishing these these percentages. I believe I'm safe in saying 97, maybe 98 percent of all of us Protestant preachers that preached and ha or have preached against the book of Mormon have never read it. We get all of our information from second-handed uh, sources. And when I went to the first-hand sources, i.e. the Book of Mormon, when I read the Book of Mormon, when I read the, uh, the publications, uh, I, I love your church history publications, the Elders Journal, the Millennial Star, the Journals of Discourse, um, <laughs> your, your, your uh, volumes of church history. It's jam-packed. Uh, and I have a saying, the Joseph Smith of today is no more a reality than Santa Claus or Uncle Sam. The, the, the Joseph Smith wow. that my gang teaches. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Let me yeah. ask you this. This is another question we receive. This is as a Baptist minister, pastor, uh, how do you use as far as how do you integrate the Book of Mormon in your preaching? Okay, that's, uh, and I get that question a lot. Uh, if you, uh, in the Baptist tradition, if you say you have a call to the ministry, like after I was, as we talked about uh, briefly last year, I had an epiphany experience when I was a teenager and was in a terrible fire. And out of that experience came a call to the ministry when I was 16 years old. I said, hey, this Jesus is real. He walked out of the pages of the Bible and into my hospital room. My playing church is over. So that was my call now uh, uh, to the ministry, point number one. Point number two, in the Baptist tr tradition, there's three offices or three ways you can fulfill of a call to the ministry, a full-time call to the ministry. Number one, you can say, well, I'm called to be a pastor, to pastor a local congregation. Or number two, I'm called to be an evangelist and to travel from church to church, city to city, uh, nation to nation. In other words, pastors are immobile. They don't travel. Evangelists are mobile. We travel. And the third call is, well, I don't feel a call to pastor. I don't have that nurturing heart. And I don't feel a call to, to um, preach from one town to another. But I feel a call to Africa or to Asia. I feel like, like I'm a missionary. So those are the three um, avenues of full-time ministry. You can either be a missionary an evangelist or a pastor. I was called, and it's in my heart. I want to outreach. I'm not happy if I'm not talking, you know, <laughs> 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 of sharing the gospel. That's what an evangelist does. He, he shares the, he's an evangel, which means a sharer or a herald of the good news. In the biblical times, there was a herald in the temple that had a long trumpet. He was a herald of the an evangel, uh, so I'm a herald. I have to blow the trumpet. So that's been my calling. I've never pastored. I've tried it, and 
uh, it's it's not where my passion is. So I, the reason I, I say that is it would be much more difficult for me to pastor a local church congregation and stay out of hot water. <laughs> but I, I have a saying, you didn't hire me and you can't fire me. <laughs> That's true. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, because I'm staying outside of all the camp. See, the good thing about the Baptist tradition is each local church is autonomy, uh, uh, autonomous. Our church politic, unlike LDS or uh, other Protestant denominations, though we have a national headquarters in Nashville, Tennessee, is the Southern Baptist, the national headquarters does not tell local churches what to do. They can establish their own church politics. So ever since I've been a Baptist, I've done what I'm doing, and they leave me alone. There's only two things that I would lose my license and ordination papers from. They'd take them away. That is, if I started having uh, affairs with women, I I'd get my license and ordination pulled. And if I started embezzlement, embezzling funds, money and women will get you yeah, <laughs> okay. I I have to stay away from both, okay. <laughs> and I do, you know. I have a five hundred one c three. I'm not trying to be funny. It just is funny, isn't it? <laughs> okay. Yeah, it sounds funny. I uh, I have a five hundred one c three, a non for profit called Mana Ministries. You give to my ministries. I never touch one dime. I can't even get to it. I have a, a manager of our ministries, and only he, it takes two people to sign and get any money out of our bank account, and I'm not on either <laughs> either account. Hmm. So I can't get to the wow. money, and I don't want to get to the other women. I'm happily married. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. And I that's don't know. I don't know if I answered your question, but um, they leave me alone. My Baptist people leave me alone. Now, don't get me wrong; they don't understand me, but they're not going to kick me out. We're very conservative, conservative in our theology, and so am I. By the way, I believe in the conservative doctrine of grace and forgiveness and mercy and faith. I just build on it, like Joseph said, come and get more. So I haven't uprooted my cardinal, central, doctrinal themes. I still preach on those themes. They're Baptist themes. You know, so, but, but I how do you how do you introduce it to somebody who uh, who's never heard about it? You know, uh, oh. has only heard like negative things about it. Yeah. You know, how yeah. do you how do you bring that up in conversations? Like, hey, buddy. Yeah. You know, uh, excellent question. A couple ways I do that. Oh, and I wish I had this statement, uh, Xerox, but I'll send you what I'm going to summarize, okay? Okay. Uh, I, I, I say, uh, in other words, let me uh, translate it like this. Uh, often, not often, uh, sometimes I'm approached by one of my Baptist buddies, a preacher friend or peers, and they say, Brother Lynn, how in the world can you believe in that book? I think that's what you're asking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and here's my response to it. My response is always the same. I never deviate from it. 
And I say, well, Brother Bill, let me ask you a question. I say, um, you believe in the Bible, don't you? Yes, I sure do. Well, do you know how the Bible, what, under what circumstances, uh, Brother Bill? Do you know how the Bible was written? And of course, most of them don't. And I sum up to Sandy, I go through the details, bullet point by bullet point. For example, I say, well, let's say, uh, Brother Bill, that I'm going to ask you to write a book. And Brother Bill, let's say that this book, oh, it's going to contain subjects of morality, poetry, different literature genres, some gospel, some poetry. Oh, there's eight or ten different genres, and it's, it consists of 66 books, and it's written, some of it is written in the time of war, and some's written time of peace, and you got 40 different authors that have written 66 books, and, so, and this book is written in three different languages on three different continents over a period of about 1,500 years or so. Now you go and you be the editor, you collect all of the writings from these 44 authors written in three different languages, put it into one book, divide it into chapters and verse. What do you have, Brother Bill? And I say, uh, let me answer. You're going to have literature hash. <laughs> You're going to have a book. I mean, that's humanly impossible. But Brother Bill, this book is logical in its development. It's um, consistent in its themes of doctrine. And the central person is Jesus Christ. Bill, that's how the Bible was written. It was written under humanly impossible situations. But the divine spirit of God wrote that book, Bill. Now, that's one assignment. Now, you go home and do it. Well, we know you can't do it. I got one other assignment real quick, Bill. And I, this is how I literally handle this. I wish I had the actual, I have it, I have it typed out, two assignments. Let me give you one more assignment, Bill. Unlike that one, <laughs> this time I want you to um, find a, a lad. Oh, let's say this lad must be between the ages of 14 to 16 years old. He's uneducated, Bill. He's never, he doesn't have any formal schooling. In fact, he's only got a third grade education, Bill. But I want you to have this lad to write a book. Write a book about two distinct nations. And uh, this lad has to write about their institutions, their educational and cultural institutions. And um, um, this lad has to include in his narrative um, about the history of a country similar to Tibet. <laughs> um, and let's say over this land has to tell this history of a country of these two nations that live in a country such as Tibet 
over a period of, a, oh, let's say a thousand years. Let's say, let's start at 421 BC and have him to have uh, writers and write this narrative all the way up to, uh, oh, let's start at 600 BC and write all the way up to about 421 AD. And oh, Bill, he also has to include the gospel in his narrative about these two nations and where they come from. Oh, Bill, he has to include about uh, miracles and healings and, 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 and certain stories in the, in the gospels. Um, and he has to get these narratives in chronological order, Bill. Now, 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 oh, by, by the way, how long did it take the King James Bible to be written? How long did it take King James, the King of England, to write the King James Bible, which most of us use? Well, how many, uh, it took him, took them over about 50, 58, years, uh, different scholars. Well, are we going to give this third grader, 14-year-old uneducated lad, we going to give him 50-some years? No. He must complete this narrative. Oh, by the way, when he's through, he has to declare to the world that his narrative is not fiction. It's real history, Bill. How long does he have to write this book? Ah, let's give him about 45 days. <laughs> Bill, my point is, Bill, that's exactly how the Book of Mormon was written. And Bill, I'm here to tell you, both books, the Bible and the Book of Mormon, were written under divine inspiration they were written in humanly impossible circumstances bill you ask me do i believe in that book yes sir i believe in it that's how i answer that now i've got this written in detail i'll go into much more specifics and you know what i'm i've never had an answer or i come back to that I, I didn't. I, I didn't have one right now. I'm just still listening. <laughs> I've never had an honest comeback to it. Never in thirty some years. So that's the first thing I do. Now I do. I do two things. Number one, I pull my two statements on them, and number two, and I say, Bill, one other thing, and then I start quoting Protestant scriptures to them. I've got about four or five Book of Mormon scriptures memorized. You know, like Alma chapter seven. Brother Bill, let me quote you this. Now the Spirit says, if you must repent and be born again, Bill. Well, the Spirit says, if you're not born again, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Bill, that's out of the Book of Mormon. And then I'll quote three or four others like that. I said, Bill, you need to read the book. 
that's how I handle it. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm wow. sure. I'm sure Bill didn't uh, wasn't able to reply on that, was he? <laughs> yeah, and 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 I, I do it in a kinder, um, softer, gentler tone in our Building Bridges conferences when we pull Protestants and Latter Day Saints together. That's but that's how I do it, and uh, you know what? They receive it. That that leads me to the to the last question. One one of the last questions. I mean, we have more, but I can't. You know, due to time, we can't ask you all the questions. But sure. What what is the um, how receptive are people when it comes to other denominations that you're promoting the Book of Mormon? That was one of the questions. How receptive are they when they when they hear about you promoting the Book of Mormon? Uh well, when I and the, that's the only way I present it. Um, and I'll answer your question. See. And let me let me preface my answer by this. I believe one of the wrong things or wrong approaches that uh, the precious memory or precious missionaries use um, is they try to uh, round third base and steal home before we get people on first. No, that's true. Uh, uh-huh. and, and I try to point this out to them. I say, look, because in, in, in maybe it's one of their sessions, they they uh, uh, try to go for a, a grand slam. I say, look, we need to get you need to get my people on first base before you uh, even bring up the one true church or uh, the matter of priesthood or the restoration of the gospel or or anything. So uh, to answer your question specifically. Um, I take it bite by bite. I present uh, whether I'm in a Catholic setting or Pentecostal setting, a Baptist session. I pre I, I approach it gingerly in the way that we've discussed so far, and I really go in uh, to this theme of the Book of Mormon is full of Protestant doctrines. So I start out by talking about the book. And then I spend probably in a in a church, if I'm in a seminar or something, I spend about 30 minutes on the book and hash over these points that we're, we're discussing. I talk about two things. I say, look, I want to talk about the book and I want to talk about the man who translated the book. And then I spend about the last 30 minutes on the man who translated the book. And by the time I've gone through the book, pointing out, hey, the Bible and the Book of Mormon, the central theme of the Book of Mormon is the Lordship of Christ. And I give them some statistics, Marty. I say, for example, did you know that in the New Testament, the name, are you, are you there? Oh yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Okay. I tell I tell my Protestant uh, friends when I'm preaching. I said, for example, did you know? Now, first of all, the central theme of the Book of Mormon is the same theme as the Bible. Both lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. It's His Lordship that is prominent, the prominent theme in both books. I say, for example, compare. In the New Testament, 
the name of Christ, some form of Christ's name. And I've got this study that was done. I've got the statistics. I'm not just blowing smoke. Some form of Christ's name is mentioned in the New Testament on an average of every 2.1 verses. The name of Christ. The Book of Mormon mentions some form of Christ's name on average of every 1.7 verses. In other words, brothers and sisters, the name of the Savior appears nearly 25% more frequently in the Book of Mormon than it does the New Testament. So I point out things like that. And, uh, um, and then, of course, one of the things that I have to address and do address is I often get this, but Brother Lynn, Mormons worship another Jesus. Yeah. I, I know you've heard that. Oh, yeah. Quite often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, how do I handle that? I mean, that is the crux of the matter. That claim, well, they worship another Jesus. And I... I say, oh, I, are you saying that Mormons believe in a salvation by works? I say, yeah, that's what I mean. You know, or something like that. They'll respond in the affirmative. And so, that, so that's, that's another. Yes, they believe. Now, a lot of them just make that statement, point number one, carte blanche. They don't have a follow-up. When I say, what do you mean? Well, they just do. <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> uh, some can articulate a follow-up and go into uh, uh, a depth and meaning, but it all comes back uh, to premortal existence and the nature of the Godhead. Well, you know, uh, Lucifer and premortal existence and, and Jesus were brothers, and, and they go back to that argument. And I don't want to delve into the deep weeds of, uh, of anthropomorphism in, in a 10-minute discussion, so I don't even go there. <laughs> so I don't even go there, but I, I say, oh, uh, you, you say they believe in another Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yes. In other words, a Jesus by works. Yes, yes. Yeah, they believe they have to go to the temple. They have to uh, 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 be married, uh, uh, they, you know, um, and all this stuff. You know, they, they articulate it in those terms. I said, well, brothers, let me, uh, um, context, I usually say context is our friend here. I say, let me point this out. I, and then they usually quote uh, Paul in Galatians. Uh, our, our Corinthians, that verse where, you know, if any man um, worship another Jesus or, is it, uh, you know, um, um, uh, let him be accursed. You know, it's in Galatians. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the main verse. Or if any other person bring another gospel by an angel, um, let him be accursed or in Corinthians. Those two are their texts. But I, but here's my point. A text 
without context is always a pretext. I'm gonna repeat that. A text without a context is always a pretext. You're not looking for answers, you're trying to validate your assumption. So now I don't tell them that because they get mad and I wanna keep this congenial, uh, but that, that's what they're doing. So I say, well, look, I do, here's, I do tell them this. I say, oh, I do make the statement. Well, context, in other words, you're saying con context is our friend here, brothers. For example, take the book of Galatians, or Galatians. Paul was read, uh, writing to all those churches in Galatia, the province of Galatia. And he was warning them to stay true to the gospel that Christ taught, which is a gospel of grace plus nothing. Oh, Marty, Ricky, Amen. I'm talking their language now. Mm -hmm. This is my gang's language. I got their attention. And they're beginning to nod. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I say, so let's look at that for a moment. The book of Galatians was primarily written for the purpose of to settle a dispute between Paul and Peter. I said, well, yeah, you're right. I said, Paul wanted to stay true to the gospel of grace, but Peter wanted to include the gospel of grace. In other words, Gentiles, non-Jews, which Paul was sent to, Gentiles had received the gospel and Peter's all upset down in Jerusalem. And he's arguing with Paul. He said, look, if we're going to baptize these Gentiles, they got to eat. They can't eat pork. And, and uh, in other words, they got to observe Jewish laws, dietary laws. That's in the book of Galatians. Peter wanted grace plus dietary laws for Gentiles to receive the gospel. And Paul disputed that, said, no, it's grace plus nothing. And uh, I say, brothers, let me bring this up to date, bring it into our 21st century. I said, Peter wanted to preach a gospel of sectarianism. That's what he wanted. I said, brothers, I went to Southern Baptist College, William Jew College in Liberty, and all, which is very, it was a conservative, and we were taught different types of inspiration. All of us brothers know that the Bible is inspired, but is it inspired per, by the theme? Is it inspired by doctrine? Or is it inspired by um, books? Or is it inspired by mechanical dictation? Did the Holy Ghost dictate every jot and tittle? Did he cross every T and dot every period? Is the King James Version verbally inerrant? Do you have to believe in verbal inerrancy to be saved? And half of them will say, yes. I said, I just did what you did to the Mormons. 
then you are believing in a gospel of works. The gospel of grace is never enough for, for uh, some of us. Some of us believe in the gospel plus a rapture. I know, brothers and sisters, of some of us Baptists believe if you don't believe in the rapture, you're not saved. Yeah. If you don't believe in a closed canon, you're not saved. If you don't believe in mechanical dictation, verbal inspiration of the Bible, you're not saved. You're a liberal. So we fight among ourselves all the time about this issue of grace plus something. Can you be a Christian and not believe in a closed canon, not believe in the rapture? And by the way, I just want to throw this in. Right? I'm talking to you now. I have found something better than the rapture. It's a rupture. Okay. <laughs> Attempted at humor there. God's, God's not going to rapture us out. He's going to rupture the kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of light. And we're not going to leave the earth. God's coming down. And I tell him, I say, I know where he's landing in Jackson County. <laughs> we ain't going up that's a rupture he's coming down or rapture god's coming down that's a rupture <laughs> and so anyway that's how i handle it and i i turn the tables on them so you just did what you um convict the mormons of it's a gospel. It's not a gospel of grace with a lot of us, of just his death, burial, and resurrection. That's not enough. We've got to throw in mechanical dictation, verbal inspiration, or we've got to throw in the rapture, uh, or, or you fill in the blanks. And the point is, I've never, I've had them just hang up on me, I've had them to walk away but I've never had them to give me real, what I would call an academic response. Well, well, Lynn, is there anything else before we go that you would like to say, or, you know, tell, you know, our listeners and maybe give some information where they can find your, you know, your website and so forth. Are you talking to me? I'm sorry. Yeah. Ricky, go ahead and go ahead well, and ask him. I, I don't want to. Do do I have time just to share one thing? Yeah. Are you yeah. sure now? Yeah. Now, well, you just cut me <laughs> yeah. off, okay? I I edit the show, so yeah, I, I'll you, tell you, you yes. won't hurt yes. my feelings. But I have been pondering. No. I knew we were going to do this, but I just wanted to to, uh, to to share with you, and I won't get through. I would like to continue this on at another time, but I would like to introduce. The main reason, and share with you briefly, maybe 10 minutes or so, briefly, the main reason why I was attracted to the Restoration. Uh, I've been attracted to the Restoration for more than one reason, but there's one reason above all others, and that's this. And let me fill in some context because it'll mean something more. After I read the book, in 1985, my neighbor knocked on the door, and he, um, he handed me the Book of Mormon. I read it with the intent of knocking on his door again and straightening him out. I read the book from cover to cover, became convinced of its truthfulness. 
I did go back and knock on his door, but for a different reason. He answers the door, Brother Kids, he's saying, um, and first words out of my mouth, I said, Brother Ken. Now, let me say this. I'm really naive at this point. I mean, I just read the book. I know nothing about church history. I just read the Book of Mormon. I'm so naive, but I'm so excited. I have not put two and two together. I have not even associated the title of the book, Book of Mormon, with the Mormon church. I have not made that connection. That's how innocent and naive I am. I asked Ken, I said, standing in his doorway, I say, Brother Ken, is there any church on the face of this earth that believes this stuff? <laughs> he leaves me standing. He walks off. He walks out of the door and he's gone. And I'm there standing in his doorway holding the screen door. And he comes back on about five minutes and he's got his arms full of books. I mean, a stack of books gets right up to me and he shoves them toward me. He says, here, read these. And of course it was church history and I'll spare you, but I did. It took me a while, but the bottom line, when I read your church history, as I said earlier, I discovered over five, I, I took a yellow magic marker, volume one, two, three, I marked every volume. And that when I was through reading, I counted the passages. I had marked with a yellow marker, 576 passages where God had somehow intervened in the daily lives of the early saints. Well, hello. That's a different gospel, brothers and sisters brothers than we Baptists preach. My point is, I make it as I discovered a distinction. The early saints had grabbed a hold or discovered or loved and worshiped and served a God that gets involved in your daily affairs. We Baptists preach a gospel of grace one primarily of forgiveness and love and repentance and mercy and faith, a gospel that prepares us primarily for the afterlife. Joseph and the early saints preached and lived a gospel of the kingdom, a gospel where God intervenes. I'm a word person. I love words. I, I taught literature. The word kingdom is really two words. It's, a, it's an alliteration of the king's domain. The word kingdom, dumb, means domain. The king's domain. And I discovered while reading, well, the king's domain was in their everyday practical living. I said, my gosh, I can relate to that. Just one example, couple, and, and two examples, then I'll shut up and we can talk later. I read, for example, when Joseph was hunted, and he was hunted, sadly, most of his short-lived life by the Missouri authorities when he moved to Illinois. They was always trying to catch him and take him back to Missouri and put him on trial. And so most of his life, he was in hiding from the Missouri authorities. And one time, Joseph and a few of his elders were hiding, staying in a in a house overnight, sleeping. And lo and behold, 
his enemies, the mob. The Missouri mob was sleeping in the very house they were sleeping in. Next room over, just a thin petition, and Joseph overheard him. What did he do? Here's a man after my own heart. Joseph, and this is in your church history. Joseph spread, prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, you made blind eyes see. Now make seeing eyes blind. <laughs> he prayed that. <laughs> and here's what happened. The mob walked out into the stairway the next morning as Joseph and his elders did. And they shook hands with one another. They were greeting one another. And the mob went one way and Joseph went the other. <laughs> wow. That's a God. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a God who gets involved. One other story and, I, and I'm done. And then I want to give some personal examples in my life where this type of stuff has happened. And that's why I'm so attracted. One other story I love. When Joseph gathered some men together while he was in Ohio, he said, let's take a march. We're going to march to Zion. In fact, they call it a Zion's camp. You remember. It was that march. They were marching. Uh, they were walking and some rioting. Well, one of the members of Zion camp by the name of Zira Cole, he kept a journal and he wrote these words. And I'm through. While riding across a vast prairie, treeless, waterless, they encamped at night after a long day's march. They had been without water since early morning, and men and animals suffered greatly from thirst, for it had been one of the hottest days of June. Here comes the good part. Joseph sat in his tent door looking out upon the scene. I, I can see him doing that. All at once, he called for a spade. That's a shovel. When it was brought, he looked about and selected a spot, the most convenient in the camp for men and teens to get water. Then he dug a shallow well. And I like this word, immediately. <laughs> well, come on, <laughs> immediately. I mean, I can picture telling this story to my gang. Hey, you know, we was wandering through in a desert and uh, uh, me and some other friends of mine and we, we run out of uh, water and everything. And I just dug a hole right there and boy, water just spewed right up in. That's hard for a Baptist to take. <laughs> Okay, so he said, then he dug a shallow well. Immediately, the water came bubbling up and filled it so that the horses and mules could stand upon the brink and drink from it. While the camp stayed there, the well remained full, despite the fact that about 200 men and scores of horses and mules were supplied from it. End of quote. Well, brothers... That's a God that gets involved. And uh, I read story after story after story. And I said, I can relate to that. And because similar experiences have experienced to me where God literally, literally came through 
this is called a tease. If I was on TV, it's a commercial tease, and I'm done. One day, the Lord told me to go buy a new car. I had no money, no bank account. But I drove to a car dealership and drove away with a brand-new car with no money, no referrals. I, we were living with the hippies. He asked me, in fact, the salesman said, well, do you have any referrals? I told him, I said, I don't have any money. He said, well, give me some referrals. I said, well, I live with a group of hippies. You want their names? <laughs> and God intervened that day, and I drove away with that brand-new car. I'll tell you how I did that last next time we meet. Yeah, man, we definitely have to do this again because uh, I have oh, some right. more questions. That, yeah, if you don't mind, you, you want to do this a third time, and uh, we'll see if we get some more questions. So, ladies and gentlemen who are listening, uh, if you have any more questions or anything like that, you got one more chance for the time being to send those in and get get them to us. And we'll ask uh, Lynn here every, everything you want to ask. I mean, because now I have my own questions. I know we're running over time now, and it's, it's, it's okay, but uh, I have a lot of questions. So, I'll make sure to write these down. Uh, Marty, I'm sure you do. I'm sure you have some more questions left on, on your list, right? Yeah, I do, and that's cool. We can get it next time, and just you know, just thank you so much, Lynn, for giving us the opportunity to have you back on here with us. My pleasure, my joy. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, brothers. This is a real privilege, and I don't take that for granted. Yeah, no, seriously. Yeah, I mean, I love these conversations. This is a. <laughs> uh, 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 an aspect that I've never even thought of before, you know, I've, and I love to hear the human experiences of people who have had like astonishing things happen to them in their lives. And, uh, yeah. So that's what I hope to, to have more on this podcast and everything. So, yeah. So ladies and gentlemen, send in your questions. We'll, we'll ask them. Um, well, I, we have my own questions and, uh, do, do you have any, any final words? Do you want to, I'll let you close out the podcast episode, Lynn, if you want. And, uh, everything, you know, say what you want. Well, I, I've said all I need to say. I'll, um, as we say here in Missouri, it's not so long. Just see you later.